welcome all of you to uh, this morning event, this webinar that we're going to have on uh, industrial policy and lessons from the past, the experiences we've had of industrial policy in modern history. I especially would like to welcome Sir Geoffrey Owen, an expert on industrial policy in Europe, who has written extensive, extensively about this subject, including an excellent report for ESAP. So welcome everyone and especially welcome to you, Geoffrey. Thank you very much for inviting me. So I would like us to start to talk about where we are right now and current developments in industrial policy and especially what is happening in leading economies in the world, the UK, continental Europe and United States. Is it right to say that we are in a new wave of industrial policy? I think we are. When, when I look at the post-war period, one can think of the early interventionist period in, say, the 60s and 70s, when some countries, particularly the UK and France, were involved in um, creating national champions and intervening to protect or promote selected industries. That was, as it were, phase one of post-war industrial policy. Then from the kind of uh, early 80s onwards, probably led by uh, Margaret Thatcher in, um, in the UK, we shifted from intervention towards greater reliance on, on markets, more horizontal policies rather than selective ones. And that was very much um, imitated or, or followed in, in other, other European countries, including France to some extent. Then this shift started, I don't know whether one could time it a little bit to the financial crisis in 2008, but since then, over the last 10 or 15 years, we have had a, a revival of a more activist involvement by the state in industrial policy matters. And I think the very interesting question is whether this new wave of industrial policy will avoid the mistakes made in the first wave, which I've mentioned, how far it differs from it. There are obviously some differences in the external environment, for example, the rise of China and the threat that uh, China is thought to, to present to uh, European and other industries. And there is, a, I think, a rather worrying move towards a more nationalistic, even perhaps protectionist form of industrial policy, which I think would be unfortunate. But I think it's still, as it were, taking shape and, and it's, it's not obvious uh, what directions will be followed. And are you seeing a development here which is uniform across countries, or do you think there are important differences between what is going on right now in different parts of the developed world? Well, I think there are. If, if you just think about Europe, both the UK and the European Union, I think there are some similarities. And, and I'm thinking particularly of this shift a little bit of shift towards more nationalistic approaches for example on foreign takeovers you know the country like the uk which has traditionally been extremely open to inward investment and generally permissive in terms of foreign acquisitions of, of, of major british companies that seems to be changing somewhat as indeed it has in in germany as part of the german industrial policy as unveiled by um, Mr. Altmaier, the um, 
need to have better instruments to prevent or discourage foreign takeovers that are thought to involve sensitive company sensitive technologies and so on so so that i think there are some similarities at the same time and more constructively i think there is a very strong desire part of major industrial countries like the ones i've mentioned to encourage new entrants new firms and to try and um, improve uh, access to finance for such firms and generally encourage new competition in the newer technologies and in particular in the case of germany to kind of shift the industrial structure uh, in, away from the industries which have been the traditional bedrock of, of german success into new areas where up to now they have been somewhat less successful so i think there are some similar trends at work and and at, at the same time i think also at the eu level i mean one thing that you can hear not that very often but at least on occasion is the talk about national champions or indeed creating european champions and that language to me suggests that they have perhaps an old older model of industrial policy in mind when they're thinking about this is that also what you're seeing that there is in addition to what you just said about the desire to have more new entry new entrepreneurship creating more of an entrepreneurial culture perhaps with the help of industrial policy that there is also a trend that they want to defend incumbents and support large multinationals in sort of their stride to keep up competitiveness as well Yes, I, I, it's interesting. I mean, obviously there was this famous case a year or two back involving Alst in France and and, uh, and Siemens in Germany on the railway equipment side, and so there is a sort of conflict there, isn't there? A potential conflict between, on the one hand, the European competition policy, which discourages potentially uh, anti-competitive mergers, and the desire, on the other hand, to have strong companies that can. Um, cope with chinese competition in in world markets and so on i mean my impression is that the old style promotion of national champions through government induced mergers as we had on a, several occasions in the uk most obviously in um, in the car industry in the auto industry i don't think there's much of that around um, i i i think there there may be a degree of protection as i mentioned in the case of of takeovers and so on but um i think the the creation of european champions well it does it does figure somewhat or seems to figure in altmaier's thinking about uh, how industrial policy should be should evolve but um i don't think that has really taken on at least that, that's my impression and not taken on in a in a big way is there any other motivation to this new wave of industrial policy than perhaps fear of china and sort of a desire to help companies to avoid chinese firms steamrolling european companies either sort of in european uh, british markets or perhaps in third markets where some of these chinese firms have become big so if we if we pause that motivation for the time being and think more about other uh, motivations for the revival of industrial policy now what would you point to as other sources for it well i think in relation to europe which is i suppose the area which i've most look, looked at most closely i think there is an anxiety but if you go back to the 60s and 70s you remember there was a lot of uh, worries about the so called technology gap 
between uh, Europe and the United States and how we must catch up in these various key technologies. I think there's a bit of that around the place. Uh, and, and the sort of general feeling is that there are new technologies coming along and artificial intelligence and quantum computing and so on, which where the fear is that Europe is going to be squeezed between the US on one side, China on the other. So, so I think there is a, a sense that um, the industrial structure in Europe needs to be shifted somewhat in the direction of so-called cutting edge technologies so that uh, we're less dependent on the on the older industries and but of course that that is combined with uh, an anxiety that the older industries keep going and uh, are not allowed to decline and obviously most importantly in the case of Germany the auto industry which is so important there and which is facing quite difficult challenges but I, I think there is a probably to a much greater extent than in the well, in, in either of the two earlier phases, a greater focus on new technology, new firms, new ent entrants. How, how can we get the same dynamism that um, is, is associated with the United States on the one hand, uh, without going in for the massive subsidies and, and sort of top-down direction, which uh, seems to characterize um, Chinese industrial policy? Let's return to that issue in a while when we talk a little bit more about trends and developments in industrial policy. But what I'd like to do first is perhaps to step back in time a bit and look back at the history, what we've learned from, from the past, both good lessons and, and bad lessons, basically what worked and what didn't work in industrial policy in, in the past. So you've already mentioned, Jeffrey, these two different phases that you have identified in, in the past, uh, in past industrial policy. So if we start with the first phase, what was distinct about industrial policy in the first phase? And what, what would you say are the lessons that we have learned from that period? Well, I think, and this here I'm obviously mostly influenced by our experience in the UK, but a little bit on other European countries too. I think we've learned, most importantly, the inability of governments to identify the right industries to, to support and support them in a kind of top-down-ish type, type of way. I think that um, that's one very important thing that where governments have taken a direct stake in creating new companies, uh, creating large companies, as in the case of British Leyland Motor Corporation, where I worked for a few years, that can be, can end in tears greatly underestimated in our case, I think probably in other countries too, but particularly in our case, greatly underestimated the um, problems of getting these great big mergers to work efficiently and, and all that. That's an important lesson, and, and I don't think we're going to go back there. I mean, I think it's one can never be completely sort of black and white about these matters. And in one case, which is often used by proponents of an active industrial policy as a good example, is the case of Rolls-Royce in the UK, which was uh, and is the principal manufacturer of aero engines. And it went bust in the early 70s and was in effect nationalized by the what was then the conservative government. And that in, in the end, that worked reasonably well in the sense that Rolls-Royce did have a innovative engine design, which turned out to be rather successful. And 
during the period of state ownership, it was able to continue to invest in that technology and eventually was privatized and so on. I think that's, a, a, in my view, a bit of an exceptional case, but it, it shows that government ownership is not, as it were, per se, certain to damage whatever is being taken over. So one needs to be, at least I, I think one needs to be a, a little bit, um, I don't know, nuanced in, in denouncing all government intervention. But I, but I, I think people are now, um, policymakers and, and others, are more aware of the, um, of the disadvantages of government control, the politicization that often gets involved um, in companies once they become owned by the state. So I think that's an important lesson. So basically, it's difficult to pick winners. Is that one of the lessons from the first phase, perhaps, that governments can do a lot in terms of taking over firms or trying to organize the markets where firms operate? And sometimes they will strike gold, but quite often they won't. And it's, it's difficult to understand sort of uh, ex ante what factors that are going to lead to success and what factors that are going to lead to failures. Yes, I, I think that's right. And, and I think actually towards the end in, in the UK, towards the end of the kind of interventionist uh, era that I mentioned, there was a recognition, a growing recognition, uh, which was taken much further under Thatcher, that new firms, in, especially in newer industries, should have a higher priority. And uh, there were two areas, one was biotechnology and the other was uh, semiconductors, where the Labour government in Britain in the late 70s helped to create two, two new firms, which was a sort of a sign of shifting away from we must have big national champions towards more innovative uh, new firms that had fresh ideas and are more likely to exploit new technologies than the incumbents. So uh, I think that was a, a sort of a beginning of a trend which was taken much, much further by um, the conservative governments which held office in the, in the 1980s and, and 90s, where, as I mentioned before, there was much more focus on horizontal policies, uh, how to encourage more spin-out companies from universities and all that sort of thing. It seems to me that an underlying assumption in industrial policy in that first phase was also the advantage of scale. You wanted to create very large type of companies. You even sometimes prefer to have conglomerates that were supported by, by, by governments. And to an extent, you can see perhaps that there is a history to that. You know, we're coming out of the Second World War. Um, we have this understanding at this time that planning bureaucracy are good assets to have in the corporate world as well. You get sort of these, sort of the, the, the man in the gray flannel suit, I think was the title of a, a book and a movie that came out at that time. And you have sort of the, the rise of the organization man. So my question here is, is it right to think that one underlying sentiment of this type of more activist industrial policy is quite intimate or quite close to the notion that scale is very important for, comp for competition? Well, yes, I think that was a, a strong motivation in that period of, of the 60s and 70s. And I think it was, as far as Europe is concerned, it was very much focused on 
admiration of the United States and, as it later turned out, an excessive admiration of big American companies like General Motors in the United States. And, and there was that famous book, as you, you recall, the um, Servan Schreiber book, which warned of, of an American takeover of, of European industry, uh, which I think turned out to be um, a very um, misleading or, or incorrect assessment of, of what was going on. And, and um, of course, as we know, General Motors has not been a good model to follow over the last uh, 20 years. But no, I, I think it, both in the UK and in France, much, I think rather much less so in Germany, there was this preoccupation with scale as the key thing. And, and I, as you say, governments probably found it easier to deal with big companies. You know, as you say, bureaucrats talking to semi-bureaucrats in big industry. And um, I think that's, um, I mean, there is a, there's a, a touch of that in, in current industrial policy thinking, but um, I, I think it's much, much less strong than um, was the case before. You know, it's interesting to see German ministers pointing, obviously they want BMW and they want Siemens and so on to, to survive and prosper, but they point to a company that, like BioNTech in the vaccine field as a great uh, German success, which of course it is. And that's an example of, of, of a newer company that is ex embracing new technology and, um, and doing rather well. And how sort of during this phase, and we can perhaps also look at a few other countries here, Ben, what was the notion about the relationship between big firms and small firms at that point? I imagine sort of a country like Germany, already then were sort of on their way to develop what is now called the Mittelstand with an ecology of many pretty small industrial oriented firms that at least serve as, as a part of the backbone of the German economy. Was that an occupation also in the first phase that you, you were proud and wanted to develop sort of that ecology of SMEs as well, or was it predominantly focused at creating large firms? sometimes at the expense of SMEs and, and their role in the economy. Yes, I, I think in the first phase, policy towards SMEs was not a high priority, was not a high priority. I think it became much more of a, a priority in the second phase of the 80s and 90s. And I think it's during that uh, second phase, especially in the UK, the success of the Mittelstand in, in Germany became much more a topic of discussion and um, what could we do to recreate or create that kind of network of small, medium-sized, specialized companies, especially in manufacturing, what could we do about it? And, and there was a very strong um, feeling, I think probably on both the major political parties, that in that area particularly, we had lessons to learn from Germany, and, and uh, what, what could we do to, for example, uh, I think in the late, say, the, under the Blair government, Blair and Gordon Brown government, there was uh, a move, which, which I think has been quite successful, to establish counterparts to the Fraunhofer uh, network in, in Germany. We had these catapult centers which helped to transfer technology from academia into, into industry and in particular focusing on, on small firms. So, so I think the small firm promotion type policy 
has and continues, I think, continues to figure very strongly in industrial policy thinking, which was much less the case in the first of those three phases that I mentioned. We're very soon going to move ahead in time a bit and go into the second phase, but the final question I'd like to ask on the first phase, and I think it's useful perhaps to go into it in order to also convey sort of a better understanding about the cultural business and economic thinking, management thinking at that, at that time in the first phase. So you mentioned the book by Jean-Jacques uh, Schreiber, Le, Le Défi Américain, which I think came out in the late 1960s. And, and as I recall it, it was preoccupied by the notion of technology and management, that it feared the uh, juggernaut of big American companies, both in, in industry and in consumer goods that were almost behaving as juggernauts when they arrived in Europe and started to offer competition to domestic firms that had in incumbents uh, up till then. So technology and management was a preoccupation. Another reference to make here, and I was reading a book by called The New Industrial State, uh, which were written by John Galbraith, yes. an American economist at that time. And he has a quote in that book, which I find pretty illustrating, where he says that the, the enemy to capitalism isn't socialism, it's the engineer. And this notion that um, sort of you had a almost mechanistic, mechanic thinking about how the economy works, where you wanted to add a lot more capabilities on technology, engineering, and indeed management, the, the ability to manage engineering firms. As you say, I mean, there are some impulses of that thinking, which is returning today, where we have this occupation about of course, technology and technology plays an important, perhaps even increasing role for corporate competition now. But going back sort of to that first phase and in trying to sort of to get this cultural understanding a bit deeper, would you agree with me sort of to say that this culture itself was sort of deeply ingrained in industrial policy, how governments thought about what they wanted to achieve? You had national champions that had a preference for scale, but it was also something more, which was more functional and more directed towards specific parts of corporate competition that related to management and engineers in particular. Well, I'm not sure about that. I think that um, the issue of the professionalization of management and the need to train managers uh, uh, especially managers capable of running large corporations, was certainly a preoccupation. And in, in our country, in the UK, that was part of the motivation for setting up the London Business School and, and the Manchester Business School. I've forgotten the date exactly, but, but th th that was a sort of early attempt to sort of replicate the quality of management, which was widely seen to be a source of um, American success. And I think in the same kind of area, you could think of the success of McKinsey, the, the management American management consultants, and, and they came in quite early, I, I think in the 60s, and, and uh, had quite a big impact. But here was a source of, um, 
of expertise in, in corporate planning and all that kind of thing that, that we didn't have and McKinsey provided. I think it's a very odd situation that when companies announced that uh, they called in McKinsey to advise them on future strategy, the share price went up because people thought this was going to be um, a secret of success or a source of success. So, so I think that, um, and of course there were following London and Manchester, uh, there were many other business schools um, founded in, in subsequent years. So, so I, I certainly think that the, the professionalization of management through business schools was certainly a theme that was um, of, of some importance. All right, so let, let's move to the second phase. You've already given some glimpses of what was in the second phase. You talk about horizontal policies uh, becoming important. So what is horizontal policy in industrial policy? Well, I think, and, and again, I'm, I'm influenced very much by our own experience in the UK. I, I think the uh, cardinal, crucial ingredient in Thatcherism was the promotion of competition, was, was the focus on competition as being the principal driver of higher productivity, greater competitiveness, and, and so on. So, so I think that um, with reducing the role of the state and increasing the role of the market, that was an approach which affected industrial policy and other aspects of government policy. And I think that was um, manifested in, in various ways, one of the most obvious being the welcome for foreign investment and, and foreign acquisitions. I remember a case which I followed when I was on the Financial Times, I think it was in the 60s, when a Swedish company, SKF, well-known Swedish company, was about to take over the leading British ball bearings company. And that provoked a great fuss. You know, these horrible Swedes uh, coming in and buying one of our crucial companies. And so in comes the government and says, well, we can't allow this. Um, and we'll engineer a kind of all British solution, you know, merging. So the Swedes were, were seen off. And then a, a few years later, under Thatcher, this company, the Ball Bearings, national champion in Ball Bearings, was sold to a Japanese company with no fuss whatsoever. You know, it was, and it's been, I think, quite a successful uh, acquisition. So obviously, British Leyland was broken up and um, parceled out to various foreign acquirers. ICL, the computer company, was sold to Fujitsu, and and uh, one of, if there was an industrial policy, it was we must have more foreign investment, and we're not worried about ownership. Um, we want an inflow of foreign technology, foreign management, big international companies like uh, Nissan and Toyota, and so on. We want them in. So. Um, of course, there was other aspects, as, as you know, about privatization and, and so on, so that these big state-owned companies like British Telecom or the post offices it used to be, which were more or less forced to buy from um, British equipment suppliers, they were free to buy from uh, whoever was appropriate in, in the world. So I think it was competition, market, and uh, I think, as I sort of touched on earlier, looking particularly at the financial system, could we make it more friendly for new firms? What tax changes needed to be made to encourage American-style venture capital firms to get established in the UK? Could the stock market be persuaded to look at how they could attract early-stage firms and so on? So those were the sort of um, 
motivations that I think drove industrial policy such as it was during that period. Was there also something new in here concerning entrepreneurship? Perhaps you can call it even a new admiration for entrepreneurs that created something new. Yes, very much so. I, I think um, at a sort of personal level, Margaret Thatcher as prime minister liked to surround herself with self-made you know, business entrepreneurs who'd made their own successful uh, companies and so on. Yes, and, and his, her ministers were, were very much seized of that, um, of, of that line. And yes, I think entrepreneurship was given a high priority. How can we encourage them to get started, to get bigger? Is there something we could do in the financial system that would improve their chances of survival and, and so on? And much of that has survived. Let's look at a few other countries, especially perhaps Germany, and, and we can also include France and a few other countries. You mentioned already previously that this notion that it's something good to have a vibrant ecology of SMEs, that that was something you associated more with the second phase. Is that something that arrives or, or then at this point in time? In, for instance, Germany, the almost sacred role of the Mittelstand, industrial policy, or at least state policies, not necessarily just industrial policy, but state policies in order to encourage economic development gets much more focused on SMEs and their ability to grow and develop. Well, yes, I think now I'm sort of perhaps spilling over from the second to the third phase or bringing them together. I think what's uh, interesting about uh, Germany in this context is the anxiety, which I think has been around for quite a long time, at least certain, maybe the 80s or 90s, particularly when Japanese competition became uh, more, more intense, that Germany, the fear that Germany was too locked in to established in industries, especially, say, mechanical engineering, machine tools, where the Mittelstand has been very prominent. And th there's been this sense that, that the whole system is very well geared to supporting those types of firms in, one might say, traditional or older industries, the training system, the vocational training system and all that, very much supporting the banking system, local banks supporting local firms, all that has been seen as a source of strength. The issue now, I think, is how the industrial structure could be shifted into the direction of newer industries, where perhaps the Americans were especially strong and the Germans or other, other Europeans were, were, were weaker. So, I mean, obviously, the Mittelstand remains a, a, a source of strength, um, much admired elsewhere and so on. The, the issue is whether those firms or new ones, like the BioNTech example that I mentioned a moment ago, can grow faster and make a bigger contribution to, to the economy, to, to exports and so on. So, so that does seem to be quite an important thrust of German industrial policy. Very soon going to come into the biotech sector, you mentioned just, just one final question on the second phase. So how much of industrial policy being developed in the 1980s and 1990s is affected by some 
poor industrial experience in the 1980s and perhaps indeed uh, all in the 1970s. We had, for instance, you know, companies like IBM that were hugely admired in the 60s and the 70s and the early 80s. I mean, they were seen as basically the master of the universe and suddenly IBM enters into the period of huge difficulties where it simply sort of cannot keep up with market change. And it's a colossi, a bureaucratic colossi in a sense. It takes a long time in order to turn the company around. We can go sort of almost country by country and we can see lots of these examples of companies that had been hugely admired in previous decades are suddenly entering into difficulties. And you see, perhaps, I don't know if this is true, so I'm asking you, almost a challenge to the notion that scale is per se something good. Yes, I'm not sure about that. I mean, I think if you look at Germany again, I think it's interesting to look at the evolution of a company such as Siemens. Uh, the, the Siemens, uh, obviously, it's still a very large company, but I, I would say that over the last 10 or 20 years, they have, uh, that company has um, reorganized itself in, in quite a radical way by hiving off things that uh, it could no longer be a, a kind of world competitor in. And I think in part, and this is sort of part of globalization, which is a slightly different story. You know, they have responded to shareholder pressure. You know, you're hanging on to the semiconductor business for too long and it's, you're never going to make it against Intel and so on. And so I think these, the big companies still very important, but have moved towards a greater degree of, of um, specialization. We're not going to try to cover the whole of the electrical, electronics um, spectrum, but play, our, play to our strengths um, and, and, of course, create new strengths. But uh, So I think the sort of conglomerate approach uh, has very much um, faded away. I mean, our situation in Britain is a bit different since we don't have companies like Siemens. We're rather short of big big companies. And I think that's a bit of a weakness in our situation. We have some big companies in the pharmaceutical industry, which is good, GlaxoSmithKline and AstraZeneca, but outside, and, and one or two in the um, aerospace sector and so on, but, but we're rather short of big companies. And um, historically, that's been a big strength in the United States, hasn't it? That, that um, you know, you get these companies like Hewlett Packard and, and so on, who, from which all kinds of spin-off companies um, emerge. Uh, so it's a, it's a mixed picture. All right, so let us talk about biotechnology, which is something you've covered in a book that you co-authored on, especially sort of the, the British development of a biotechnology sector. Of course, I mean, this is now very much in the news and very much discussed as every country is racing to try to scale up vaccines production. So looking at biotechnology sector, and perhaps not in the UK, we can also talk about Germany since at least now they have two uh, companies, BioNTech and CureVac, uh, that have both been pretty successful uh, in the development of, of COVID-19 vaccines. But what were sort of the distinguishing factors, uh, the sort of the government policy factors to the extent they played a role for creating biotechnology success what are these factors? What governments doing that were good? Well, I think that um, if you take the UK first, I think the UK government has governments have played their cards uh, 
quite skillfully in, in this sector. The, the government, as I briefly mentioned earlier, did, under Labour, did uh, set up the first British biotech company, which is called Celtech, uh, back at the end of the 70s. And although that company was subsequently acquired by a, a Belgian pharmaceutical group, it did. It was a sort of um, pace setter or, or a kind of sort of a role model. Anyway, during the 1980s, the um, biotech sector in the UK did grow uh, quite impressively. There were some big setbacks, and, and uh, some companies, you know, overpromised what what they started um, seeing that UK science, biomedical science, was something that could be, you know, the basis for successful companies. And so you've got quite quite an active involvement there. And I think by European standards, at any rate, uh, the UK has done well in, in, the, in the biotech sector. What has been a source of anxiety is that in London, but go to America and get listed on the NASDAQ exchange in, in America. But that reflects the fact that the US has a much, much bigger biotech sector, has a much bigger invest early stage firms and so on. And um, I think the German story is, is much more, is, is, is interesting in that there, as, as you will recall, there was a burst of activity in the German biotech sector I think in the mid to late 90s, stimulated by, um, by government, both at the federal level and, the, and at the state level. And uh, mm. as you remember, a, a new stock market was set up called the Neuermark, to, uh, to which many of these, or several of these biotech firms, quote, went for a, for a stock market listing. And all that came unstuck. And, and, and again, there was a sort of over-promising over situation in, and some of those firms uh, disappeared. But I think that since then, and probably thanks to, in part at any rate, to um, government-led sort of assistance schemes or financial assistance schemes, you know, firms like, I think BioNTech is an example, they have made use of at least two of the German government financial assistance schemes, and that's been helpful. How, whether that's been decisive in their growth, I'm, I'm not sure. But, but um, you know, again, my impression is that, that, okay, as you were saying, CureVac and BioNTech are well known, but I think there are others that are, that are doing okay. So I think that um, in, in, that, uh, in that area, the Germans have, have suddenly recovered from that Neumark disaster, and, um, and that sector looks, um, I would have thought, reasonably promising. All right, so a few questions, Jeffrey, from other audience. Let's start with one which is on the linkages between industrial policy and trade policy. I mean, is there such a linkage in the first place that you can sort of link what you do domestically to desire on the external front to protect or open up? Well, again, I, I am rather anxious about the trend in Europe and I think also in the in the EU and, and also in the UK towards um, what sometimes is called strategic autonomy, you know, the, the suggestion that we should be look again at uh, 
supply chains uh, around the world and see what can be reshored in, into domestic areas and so on. Now, obviously, the vaccine, the vaccine situation has highlighted all that. And um, I think that there's an intimate connection between industrial policy and trade policy, and one that should be you know, uh, looked at very much taken on board. Uh, again, I, I worry in, in our case, the British case, at sort of rhetoric from ministers, which seems to imply quite a number of strategic, so-called strategic industries, which should be which should be um, preserved or, or created. And there's a particularly tricky issue at the moment, and I'm not sure how it's going to be solved over the steel industry in the UK, which is in a very difficult, weak situation. What can the government do? Is steel a strategic industry in some sense? Uh, should the government intervene directly with, uh, I don't know, equity injection or, or whatever? I mean, that's one one area, and and it seems to me that if you start start moving along the that track, you know, all kinds of industries can appear to have some kind of strategic value or something to do with national security and so on, and should be preserved in the UK. I I, I think that the trade policy aspect of this whole thing is is extremely important and. I very much hope that the um, uh, the, the reshoring tendency uh, does not um, get out of hand. All right. A final question, Jeffrey, before we are going to close. This is also it's 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 a question from one from one person in the audience, but also links to something that we were talking about previously when I made that connection between the admiration for bureaucracy, management skills, engineers back in the first phase of industrial policy and what we're seeing right now. So the comment here from one in the audience is basically that his experience is that management is becoming more top heavy in business again. And it's especially been so in the past 10 years. A lot more coordination, many more people are sort of sucked into spending a lot of their working time in meetings and just following the email flow that takes place within large and complex organizations and all that takes time away from more sort of productive work that you could do. So I think to add a question to that comment is basically, do we have sort of a notion right now where it's again a premium on scale, large companies and the role of management, especially in large companies, that management there is much more professional than you have in other types of companies. And in an age when technology is becoming ever more important, it is critical again that we move towards large entities that can attract these type of engineers, even if it's top heavy or top, very much top down, even if it leads to a lot of waste of, of labor resources, are we yet again at this phase, like in the in the first phase, where we, we prefer large units in order to compete in the world? Well, I think my my feeling is is really not the same as that that you've just explained. I mean, I think, and again, this is maybe is a British um, viewpoint, that's not necessarily shared in, in other countries. But um, my impression is that the focus is much more on innovative businesses, innovative business, smaller business, fintech, for example, which is appears to be quite a growing um, sector in the UK and, and elsewhere. When I left university um, a long, long time ago, many people first choice 
is to go and work for Ford or, or Unilever or Shell or BP or whatever. Now, I'm sure some people are continuing to, to do that, but I, I think the much stronger motivation nowadays is to start their own business or, or have in mind to start their own business. Maybe they might work for McKinsey for somewhere for a few years and then start their own business. So, so I think it's the, uh, what I think is, is healthy and, and, and encouraging is, is that this sort of combination of starting new things, making use of new technology, drawing on some, in some cases, drawing on scientific um, discoveries made in universities. I think that's where a lot of young people are, are seeing their, their future. Of course, we want medium-sized companies of all sizes to flourish, including big ones. But um, I do feel that the attitude of, of, of young people to their careers and, and uh, where they think they can enjoy themselves, make reasonable money and, and also contribute to um, you know, prosperity and economic growth and so on. I, I think that's all encouraging and, and uh, I'm optimistic about that. All right. I think that was a very good note to end this conversation on, a good, a good deal of optimism. So thank you very much, Jeffrey, for taking the time to enlighten us on all these aspects of industrial policy, both, both sort of going back in time and discussing current developments right now. It's been a huge pleasure.